Well, my intention in coming to Romans was that I thought we would look at this, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it came on the church in Acts and then look and see how that worked out in the life of the church. And then I was hoping to sort of wrap up that series or that sort of look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit by taking a look at last week, what was promised to us concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit in uh, the Old Testament. We looked at Isaiah. And then I wanted to look at one other New Testament source, uh, maybe like one of the letters of Paul. So I thought Romans 12 would be a good way to wrap it up, where he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, but it ended up being one of those weeks where, you know, I prepared like three, four sermons. <laughs> the first idea was let's just go through the whole book. And then I realized, well, you know, this is just too much. We can't go. So let's just focus in on what we you know, I had hoped we could talk through is just these uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then, and then once I got through that, I realized that that's too much too. But then I thought, well, let's just focus in on this one that seems to make sense of all the others when he focuses in here at the end of verse six on prophecy. And I had sort of intended on, let's look at some Old Testament passages in addition to this to kind of get a feel for uh, what it is he's talking about concerning prophecy. But this morning and I don't know, maybe even I started yesterday realizing it, that we're just, it's just not a, we're not going to be able to really understand what Paul's getting at if we don't have a grasp on this beginning, the, what he's, how he introduces the discussion of these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that if we can understand what he's saying here as he, introduces this discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that that probably is going to answer a lot of our questions in a, in a better way than uh, just taking a look. But, but whatever the case, I, I could be wrong about it, but I feel like the Lord wants us to just take a look here at these first six verses. Now, to understand what's happening in Romans is, is Paul, it's one of the main books, all the books that he wrote had this problem. And, and what the problem was is people from the church in Jerusalem and people who had a background in Judaism that were coming to follow Jesus had this thought and it got brought up in a lot of different ways. But the basic general idea is, is yes, we come, we need forgiveness for our sins and we come to Jesus and we get forgiveness for our sins. But the thought was that that sort of resets us or then gives us an opportunity to now get it right. That just because we're forgiven from our sins, it doesn't change the fact that there are right or wrong things that we need to do. And you can't just say that there is nothing right or wrong anymore. And so their argument was there has to be things that we tell people that they have to do. And our relationship with God has to in some way depend on things that we just have to do. And what happens when we go down that road of thinking is we just think that the difference between us and everyone else in the world isn't that, you know, just the gospel, everyone sees that there's forgiveness. The difference has to be that, that we understand what's right. And if we understand what's right, other people don't. So we may need to tell them what's right. Or other people may know what's right. And they just refuse to do what's right. And so maybe we need to fight against those people that are trying to do it. And you sort of have this sort of battle mentality and that was coming into the church. And so Paul was trying to piece that apart 
and telling them that, look, once you start following Jesus, it's not like you're a good person and everyone else is bad. We continue to sin. We continue to mess things up. We continue to need forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't just a one-time thing. We're sort of in a, as Luther writes when he talks about this, we're in a continual need for forgiveness. We're continually needing Jesus. It's an ongoing thing in our life. And so the main thing that he's been talking about is this idea of what is the place that we're left in. If we, once we come to the place of realizing I've messed up, I should have done this, I should have done that. I knew what was good, I didn't do it. Whatever the case was, I'm in a situation now where I'm facing things that I know that I've caused, I know that I've contributed to, I know that I need help, and I know I'm just not going to be able to save myself. And you come to that place of just realizing I need repentance, and I need forgiveness, and I need God's, I need grace and mercy in my life. Because the idea of me doing the right thing, knowing the right thing, and then doing it, 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 it failed. <laughs> There's an instance of it failing, and now I'm in a situation where I know what I need is grace and mercy and forgiveness. When we come to that realization and we see that we need forgiveness for our sins and we see that we can find that forgiveness in Jesus, what place then does that leave us in? Is there, does it mean that there's no right or wrong? Paul's saying, no, there, there's still right or wrong. Does it mean that we don't do anything? He's, he's talking through that. And so the reason why that's important is because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are sort of an extension of that line of reasoning, that we can come to the gifts of the Holy Spirit thinking one way, and it'll be, he's about to say, disastrous. Or we can come to it another way, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit are sort of an extension of that idea of how then do we respond? What uh, constraint is there on us or, or what causes there for us to say this needs to be done by us we should do this type thing that type of thing how, how does that play out first and so he, here's how he starts that discussion he says therefore I urge you in other words he's saying look I'm coming from this perspective of Jesus has saved me uh, i Everything good in the world comes as a gift from God. Does that now mean that I can no longer urge anyone to do anything? He says, no, I'm urging you to do something. There is still room for us to urge people to do something, to say, look, this just needs to be done. But what is it that needs to be done? Because a lot of times when we say, well, we need to urge, so we assume that the only thing that there is is to urge them to know the right thing to do and then to do it. And what Paul is saying, no, there's other things that you can urge people to do. And here's what he says. He says, I therefore urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And he's not just giving that as a, a trivial thing to say or just as a religious line. He's some of this stuff is being said for the first time. It's unusual to them, possibly. And, and so what he's saying is, look, I urge you, but I'm not urging you 
to go back to this old idea of basing everything that I do on this idea that my only contribution in life or that, that, that salvation has to entail me knowing the right thing to do and me going out and doing it. And so when I have forgiveness, I just see that as a restart. Okay, now it's my chance to go back and do this. I just keep going back to this same base over and over again. I need to do the right thing. I need to know the right thing and do the right thing. Oh, I failed. Now I have forgiveness. Now I go back. I try. And so you're just sort of in this vicious circle. Going, he says, that's not what this is all about. He says, when you come back, you don't come back to the broken idea. That idea failed us. That's why Jesus needed to die on the cross. Why go back to that? that that's death to us. He says, go back to where you found life. And where we find life is in God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy. So he's saying, look, I'm not. And then he says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He gives a descriptor to sacrifice. He doesn't just say sacrifice. Now, what's the sacrifice that he's referring to? He's talking in this book about that religious idea of sacrifice that was there in Judaism. And he's not just talking about that, but it's this whole idea of following the law. It's this idea of we need to be doing the right thing. And the way to do the right thing is we need to know the right thing and then have this sort of uh, pressure on us to force us to do. There has to be some sort of element in that. And he says, look, we're all heading in the same direction but I'm putting a different descriptor in front of what I'm doing. <laughs> Mine is about living. Yours is about dying. In other words, the sacrifice that they had was a sacrifice where you killed an animal or something like that, but it wasn't, that was just a symbol. It was that here's what needs to happen in order for things to be made right. I need to die. You know, things have gotten to the point where I've just done so much horrible, contributed to so much horrible thing that in order for things to be made right, I would need to die. And Jesus died that death for us, but then God raised him from the dead. And so he's saying, now there's a different way of approaching. What's he getting at there? Look, it's not that what's right or wrong has necessarily changed. It's not that if we base our rational thought, he, he says after this, um, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper word. I don't know why they say true and why should proper word. If you look at like some of the older versions, like uh, King James Version, they, uh, they use sort of just the literal terms, which is just reasonable service. This is your reasonable service. And service in the Greek just means someone who's paid to do a job or given something to do something is the idea. And this is the reason that proceeds that causes us to give something that to, we've been given something and then we give something. There's reason involved in that. What's he getting at? He says here, uh, holy. A lot of times when we see that word holy, what it really means is set apart. But what jumps into everyone's minds when we say holy is, I need to do the right thing and if I know the right thing and do the right thing, then I'm holy or then I'm set apart for God. Well, great if we were to ever do that, but we don't do that. That's why we needed Jesus. 
Jesus was holy in that sense of knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. But we, no one has ever gained, other than Jesus, has gained holiness or has been set apart from anyone else on that basis. We keep trying to argue that we're set apart based on I'm a better person than this person. That's just not something that's going to hold water when you really examine it closely. He says later when you apply some sober judgment to it. What's he getting at here? He says, look, stop going back to that. You don't need to go back to that. Just go back to those moments in your life when you see grace, when you see mercy, and then rationally proceed on that basis. We keep trying to rationally proceed on the basis of the only way that good can happen in my life or good can happen in the world. It has to be me doing the right thing even though that's proved over and over again to be false. And when it's proved false, what is it that proves it false? It's that there's this moment in our life when we experience grace, mercy, forgiveness. Saying, look, you need to rationally proceed on those moments. How does, what, what seems reasonable based on that? How does that change things for us? Look, if, you, if we think, oh, I'm going to help this person out, that's a good thing, right? Help this person out. Yeah. Someone who's following the grace of God will probably help this person out. Someone who's following the law or following I need to do the right thing may help this person. It's the sacrifice, the sacrifice. He's not changing what's right or wrong. It's this is a good thing to do. But how does it change things when you base it on, a moment of grace in your life versus basing it on a moment in your life when you think you've done something right. How does that work out? Well, if I think I've done something right, I'll think, hey, I'm not in this person's position because, you know, I've, you know, one, disciplined myself a little bit, showing up on time to stuff. I've kind of learned these virtues that have to do with work. I've also learned some discipline things. I've gotten an education. I've done these different things. And so if you think that all of those things are your contribution, that you've done some of these right things, that you figured out how to like, you know, invest early and get a home and a mortgage and, and you know, how to sort of adjust your finance, how to all these different things that we think of as virtuous, that we think of apply to ourselves, that we think of we did this that helped contribute. If that's what we thought, and that's our basis of it, how will we rationally proceed from that? Everybody knows how you rationally proceed from that. You're going to think, well, I can't just give this person money because that's not going to change their life. That's not going to change. I, I've got to like show them how to get a job. I got to show them how to manage their life. I have to show them how to be like me. If I show them how to be like me, then their life will be wonderful. Now, if they decide they don't want to be like me, I mean, there's nothing I can do about me giving them money. That's not going to help because they don't want to be like me. They have to worship me, be like me, do the things that I do, plan their life out the way, get the education. That, and if they can't do that, then there's no hope for them. That's where the reason leads. And that's a fallacy. Because in the fallacy, doesn't it's not a re the reason is very, very reasonable. It's not like someone's not thinking or that's not logical. That's very logical if this is the basis 
that you're starting from. The problem isn't the reason. The problem isn't over here that this isn't good or this is, we keep trying to adjust what it is out here. It's not that. It's not the reason. It's this base thought that's incorrect. And that's why he says, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. He says there's this transition that has to happen in the way we view things and the way we look at things. And that transition is not by adjusting what's good or bad and finding a difference and saying, oh, well, I know what's good and this person doesn't know what's good. And it's not found in saying, I'm the only logical thinking person. We try and always create this distinction. It's like, well, those people just aren't rational. They're just not looking at, they're just not being reasonable. Everybody is being reasonable. There's no reason to try and demean someone and say they're not thinking rationally. That's not the problem. We're all thinking rationally. We all have a conscience, Paul says at the beginning, that tells us what's right or wrong, just as good. And that conscience serves us just as good as any law, even the law of God. And we're all being reasonable. He's saying the problem is down here. It is what we're basing our reason on. And he says, base it on your view of the grace of God. How does that change things? Well, if I think I've got something to help this person, how, how does my reason react if I know, I don't know why I have this. I know I certainly don't deserve it. I, I just, I, I'm not sure why God gave me this. I have way more than I need here. And I know that I don't deserve it. I know that I've actually done some horrible things, I, that, that, the mistakes that, that deserve to just like not have any of this. And, and so now, how does reason proceed from that to help someone? Well, it just is like, well, I don't, I'm just going to give them some, some cash or something. I don't know. Just give them some help. I'm not going to put some, you know, it changes things. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Before we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, let's talk about this, how even just our basic actions need to be looked at. And he says, when he says living, he's saying, this is the difference between life and death. Because people can tell. And when you help person, someone, the, the, it'll be flavored in such a way so that their reason will go backwards and they will be able to assess because they're rational just like we're rational. And so the way reason works is you can go this way and then someone, when they receive it, they can reason back and they will reason back to the idea that you think you're some sort of savior, that you think you know what's right, that you think that you're better than them. And they'll make the correct evaluation of that, which is this person's a hypocrite. And that's a rational evaluation because it's absolutely true. Because what we are saying in our good deeds is I'm better than you. And people feel that and see that and correctly, rationally, logically make the adjustment that this person's a hypocrite because we are, because they know that we didn't deserve that. Now, he's not just talking about believers. Everybody in the entire world encounters a moment that they would classify as a moment of grace in our life, a moment of mercy, a moment when something has come to us by something that you might say forgiveness. 
Now, not everyone calls it God's mercy. That's a process that we come to. And what he's saying is, is coming to Jesus is about us seeing these data points. And that the data points that show I need to, I get results from me doing the right things, that every once in a while that gets broken and shown, displayed for what it is. That it's not consistent, that doesn't always work. That there comes a moment in time when it breaks, when we don't do the right thing, when we don't know what the right things do. And it shows the disqualification of this process. But as that happens, a lot of times in accompaniment with that, something happens then that we see this was just a gracious moment for me. It, it, I really can't connect this to something that I did. I, I'd like to be able to, I could maybe fake it and connect it to, but a lot of times the people, as he says, sober judgment, just being honest in a moment of honesty, we'd have to say, I don't know. I, I really can't connect this to something. This is just a moment of grace and coming to Jesus is coming to see that that grace is not just luck. It's not just randomness. It's not definitely not coming from some sort of community goodness or forgiveness, because that's clearly not happening, but it's here nonetheless. And so this is worth thinking about. Where is this coming from? And as we come to understand, this is coming from a living God, a God that cares about us and loves us. That's the journey that we start going down with following. It's coming to know who that God is. And then coming to know, well, if that's, you know, I know that this one thing came to this, but I mean, I've got all these other data points that I think prove that I'm doing this and this and this. Part of it is like understanding, it's like, yeah, you know, as Paul says next, when we go on to this, he says, uh, I, I think, think for yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the, uh, uh, sorry, for by the grace given to me, verse three, I say to each of you, uh, do not think of yourself more highly as you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. He says, for by the grace given to me. How would we rationally proceed on this by looking at this moment of grace, starting to realize that it's God in our life? We'd start to realize that everything we have is a gift from God. The other way of thinking is thinking, well, this all happened because I'm the smartest person in the world. I'm the best person in the world. And Paul doesn't say, Look, you don't need to think you're the least person in the world, but you're probably thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. <laughs> and so what happens on this journey? It's not like you think of yourself as just this horrible person forever, but you start etching it down and realizing I'm probably not the best person in the world. I'm going to say I'm in the top 10. I'm one of the top 10. And then like, you know, a few months goes by and goes, I don't know, I'm probably not in the top 10. I was probably thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. I'm in the 20th percentile, you know? And so you just start going through, and he says, it's a journey to realizing that in reality, we're not contributing anything. It's always a gift from God. This, this when we start reason based on what is grace and what is the mercy of God, as it grows, we come to realize this actually explains everything. 
I don't think that there's anything that's left on this other side. There is no balance to be had because everything is explained according to God's graciousness. Say, well then, how then can we ever have law and order? How is it that we can ever have anyone do anything good? Everyone would just do something. There's no reason why anyone would ever do something good unless their life was being threatened, unless it was on pain of death. There's no way that you could ever say anything or tell anyone to do anything if you weren't able to tell them that I'm this awesome person and you need to be like me. Paul says, look, I'm not saying you're the worst, but let's use some, so I brought up the, a few weeks ago that uh, Mike Tyson brought up that he's got this little voice that says, you're the best boxer and you're the greatest fighter that's ever existed. And I've got this other voice that keeps telling me, you're the worst person in the world. And he says, I keep feeling like, which one am I? Paul's saying, look, you don't have to go from here to here or here to here. That's the devil seesawing. He just says, use some sober judgment. And it's pretty obvious that when we start going down this road of thinking that something good has happened in my life because I've done something good, we're, we're probably thinking a little more highly of ourselves than, than what we need to. And if we just had a little bit more sober judgment, what would come out is that we would see the real explanation is God's grace is on us. God's mercy is on us. God is forgiving us. So where does that leave us? He says, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Starting to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting here because he doesn't say, in accordance with the faith that each of you have. He doesn't say it like that. If we're following this line of thinking of I need to figure out the right thing to do and I need to do it, then once we, when we start talking about faith or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how's that thought process? It's going to be, I need to have faith, and when I have faith, then this will happen. But Paul doesn't go there. He says, actually, if you were to think about it from this other, how you would approach it is, what is the faith that God has given me? How has God demonstrated himself to be faithful? How does that work out in our life? Well, a lot of times it's like, you know, when you talk to someone who's maybe lost their job numerous, numerous times, but God's always given them another job. A lot of times they'll explain it as like in that in-between process, like, you know, I, I should be a little bit nervous, but, you know, God's done this. God's always been faithful. God's always proven. And so they have some faith, but that faith is based on God's faithfulness towards them. That in this one issue, it's happened enough times that God's faithfulness has been proven over and over and over and over again that we approach it now. We've got a little bit of faith. But that faith's not coming from us. It's coming from having seen God's mercy, God's grace. Um, and that's how the gifts of the Holy Spirit work. It doesn't come from you having enough faith. It's that after having seen God's faithfulness and doing this over and over again, then in that one thing, we have an abundance of faith that it's going to happen because we've seen it happen. Or we, we've seen the grace of God working. 
And so how does this work then? Well, once we start going through this, what, what is it that sober judgment brings? It makes us realize exactly what he says here. So we in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, and we have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. Look, if, you, if we look at our lives soberly, what are we going to see? It doesn't matter whether you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world. I guarantee you, you're going to see the exact same thing. In some aspect of your life, you just got too much. If God's the one who's given it, he's given us too much. I, I don't need all this. It could be I got too much food. I got too much cash. I got too much time. I got too much this. I got too much that. I got too much this. I got too much. But then we're also going to notice there's some other aspect of our life that I don't have enough for that. I've got too much here. I don't have enough here. If God's the one giving it, why does God give us in our lives things? And it's not just, it's not about cash. Cash is one aspect, but it's probably the least of the aspect. Why is it in some aspect of our life, I've just got so much. And then in another aspect, I just have so little. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just give me all my, make me self-sufficient so that I have everything? That's the way this other way of thinking wants us to go. But looking at God's grace leads us to this sober realization of what the truth is in our life, that in some aspect, I got way too much and I got way too little. He says, this is what the gifts of the Holy Spirit is. And this is what the church is. And this is what God's doing is by creating this imbalance in our life where I have too much and I've got too little, it pairs us with someone else who has too much of what we have too little and has too little of what we have too much. So it's a match made in heaven. If we're willing to share, if we're willing to give, if we're willing to connect to that person, if we're willing to create a life with that person, if we're willing to see that person as myself or connect as one body, then it makes perfect sense. Why? Because that, that exchange of giving and receiving, giving and receiving, not just one person giving and one person receiving, but an exchange of that where the grace of God has given abundance and the grace of God has given need. And why is it the grace of God has given need? Because he has actually given abundance. It's just given it to this person. As it says there, something has been given to do a job. It's reasonable service. What's the reasonable service if the goal is for us to create loving and caring relationships, for us to become a family with people, for us to become bonded with people? Do you just become bonded by virtue? No. If that was the case, you know, you become bonded together by real life, tangible bondings, by these experiences where this one is in need in some sort of way. And I just, God gave enough to work that out. And God's given them an abundance here. And I'm in need here. And we're connecting 
in that type of way. And that's a beautiful gift that God's giving so that our relationship in terms of grace and forgiveness and mercy isn't just between us and God. Because the relationship, as we saw with Adam, when it was just him and God, that wasn't enough for us. God has been creating since the beginning of time a relationship that creates multiple people connected together for our own good so that we will not be alone. And he himself, instead of standing apart, has come down and connected himself in that. And that's what Jesus is. So as we discuss the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's really an extension of, well, if everything good is a gift from God, what then can we say? What then should we urge? What then should we do? And Paul's simply saying, well, I can urge you. I can urge you to not be alone. I can urge you to stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I can urge you to give, not as a moment of virtue, but to give and receive as a way of building bonds between us. And no one has to do any of that. If we want to be alone, we can be alone. We can just sit out there and be alone. But he says reason itself shows us this should seem reasonable to us. And the basis of it is not do the right thing. The beauty of this whole thing is it doesn't depend on us all doing it. Or I think, well, yeah, but someone's going, to get, someone's going to get hurt anyways. But these bonds of God giving us more than what we need, God giving us less than what we need. God giving someone else what it is that we need and, and figuring out that he's given us what they need. And as we come together and we become whole and we become one and our needs are met, that's what the view of the local church is. And you say, well, the problem is, is that even when that happens, we're still, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus saying, Look, I understand that even if you guys all, it, just to be clear, what I'm saying is not everyone just needs to come together. If everyone comes together, we're still lacking. <laughs> that doesn't, it's coming together under what God is giving, under the grace of God. It's coming together, not on the basis of what's the right thing to do and we need to do it, we need to come together. That's going to leave us lacking. It's that what is the grace of God there in our lives for? It's there in our lives for us to connect to God by us seeing how much God loves us and cares for us. And it's there for us to be able to connect to other people so that we can have this bond. And that's just what it's all about. And if we don't want that, then there's no compulsion but he's saying we can have that bond right now. We don't need to wait till in heaven. It'll happen in heaven, but we can have it right now in the midst of all our troubles, in the midst of everything that's going wrong, in the midst of all our failures and all our supposed successes or whatever, in the midst of all that stuff, there's this wonderful opportunity for us to come together. But the way we come together is by basing our rational thought on these moments of grace, coming to see that these moments of grace in our life 
are a gift from God. And these gifts from God are given. He could bring us up into heaven, but he's left us here because there's something beautiful, something wonderful about being able to create a bond with someone where I have this, they have this, they have this, I have this, and that coming together. We're not going to be able to have that bond in heaven because we'll all have everything. But this time is something beautiful where a bond is formed based on a giving and receiving, and not just a giving of receiving of a token of something like socks on Christmas, a giving and receiving where our heart is connected and we know we need help. We need help right now. And we can't help ourselves. We need it. We need And then someone, God gives it and someone connects to us and we bond together and that type of thing. There's something beautiful in that moment where our hearts are open and our hearts cry out and God works it out that we can form this bond of love. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are just purely an extension of that. They're coming to that and realizing, God, I gave all that I could. I, I, we're both lacking. There's this situation where it's like, I've got this, they've got this, and we're exchanging, but we really need this. And that's God said, don't worry. I'm going to take care of it. I'm here, and I'll give you what's impossible. So it's not people coming together in community. It's people coming together in community, understanding the grace of God and building a reasonable, sober life based on the forgiveness that God has given us, the grace that God has given us, the mercy that God is giving us, knowing that we're not going to be able to do it on our own. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for all that you do for us, and I pray you would transform our our minds, transform our hearts, and please just continue to work on that this week. And I pray as you did in Acts that you would just give mega grace, a lot of grace in our life. Help us to be able to see these moments of grace. Help us to be able to see that it's being given by you. And Lord, just please pull our hearts and as Paul is urging us, as you're urging us to take advantage of these opportunities to bond by this exchange of gifts, gifts that you've given. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.